0: Hello, I'm Harris Shilakovsky, violinist, composer, and fan of cosmology. Opus Magnanimus is a project that tells the history of our universe by introducing people who made important discoveries or inventions that enable us to understand our cosmos better. Events and discoveries, and the people who are associated with those events are each represented by original music which I have composed or arranged. These pieces of music and songs will eventually become a compilation which will be released to the general public, but you get to hear them first, right as they're being sketched, performed, and produced on this audio podcast. So, if you've been visiting with me before on my podcast, you'll know that what I like to do is to spend some time looking back in history at discoveries and discoverers, people who figured out things about the universe, and in some cases before things like telescopes were even invented, but people used some clever ways of figuring things out before mathematics was really figured out, before astronomy even existed as a discipline. So going way back to today, we're going to visit the era around 500 BCE, before the Common Era, in the time of Plato. Plato is known by many people as being a philosopher, but philosophers were, were like scientific type people. They thought about issues and tried to figure out, like I said, things about the universe. Plato was down in his book, which he entitled Timaeus it's described as being a dialogue describing the creation of the universe so this is a pretty grandiose guy I mean he thought he could figure out the whole universe well actually he had some pretty clever ideas we know nowadays of course that some of them you know might not be perfectly accurate but he had some really interesting ideas Let's just take a look at the article in, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, well uh, of course, as usual, we'll give you the link to this uh, on the uh, podcast websites wherever it's published, so that you'll be able to see what you know where I've taken interesting information from, And, of course, to give credit to the people who did all the research to really bring to life these important insights. So, Plato's Timaeus. uh, This was published back in 2005 and revised in 2022. Plato presents a, a really elaborate account of the formation of the universe and he explains its order and its beauty he thinks that the universe is the result of a rational purposeful beneficent agency now what's an agency an agency could be like a god right uh, he says it's it's created by the Divine Craftsman, or the Demiurge, who, imitating the what he felt was the unchanging, eternal model of the universe, imposes mathematical order. And I'm going to quote directly from the Stanford publication, Mathematical order on a pre-existent chaos to generate the ordered universe or the cosmos. I guess you could say that But Plato, I don't know if he came up with that idea, that actual word, cosmos. But in any case, he, he basically, and I, I, again, I urge you to, to read these uh, wonderful articles uh, to get the whole you know, the real thing, because I'm, you know, I'm not going to just sit here and plagiarize uh, this thing all day long. You know, that's uh, not not cool. But uh, in any case, there was, um, th- this was supposed to be a dialogue uh, between uh, Socrates, Timaeus, Critias, and Hermocrates. Um, and uh, they discussed um you know I guess things like you know living beings and and uh, uh, materials and you know how things came to be I don't know if this discussion ever really happened of course I mean he relates it in his book as being a discussion uh you know this might be just a um, uh, you know his way of, of telling us a story in a in a delightful way by making it into a dialogue, into a conversation, but in any case, Plato felt that uh, the the universe was governed by a rational mind. So basically, I mean, you know, people people subsequently have proposed that. Maybe a god or god or you know some greater being created the universe. Um, Plato feels that it was a rational mind of some sort that puts things in the universe into an order, into a rational order, uh, and that there are ideas or principles that govern how everything works Um, motion cosmic things you know things in the sky psychological things and that everything in his opinion was cyclical everything you know sort of you know you could create something from something else and then it would eventually go back to being in the previous state that it had been in so um uh, he felt that um, he also explained in his idea of how the universe was actually created. So, And he also broke it down into the elements that he felt, uh, you know, from his observations, were what comprised the entire universe. He felt that there were five different types of matter. Earth, air, fire, water, and cosmos. And he felt that he sort of figured out that each one of these five different types of matter... uh, Now, I, I don't want you to confuse the idea of matter that Plato had specifically or exactly with the way that physicists and scientists have come to understand uh, things about matter uh, today. Um, But there are certainly parallels and similarities. So in any case, the interesting thing was that he had this idea that each of these forms of matter these types of matter I should say had a particular geometry a, a shape uh, and uh, he felt that the shape that represented or that, that was somehow the earth was the shape of a cube um, in 2020 just a couple of years ago there was an article in a publication called science daily and by the way i'm not ever going to say that i believe more about any particular publication of the veracity or the truth of anybody's particular uh, opinion about things uh it's not for me to determine that that those are big discussions and um So anyway, he believed that, um, uh, that another interesting idea was, this is sort of the philosophical part of it, that goodness was a fundamental feature of the world. His, uh, his idea of cosmology, the the creation of the universe, uh, he felt that even the the world even had its own soul and that... Principles of mathematical perfection structure the whole universe at every level. So, I mean, this is really interesting because it really was a precursor to the way that we study and think about the universe to this day. We do take this sort of rational approach to understanding how things work, what things are, what they're made of. Um, so really, Plato was, you know, in his day, the, in the, the Greek schools of philosophy and science and music and math and everything, were really aiming towards a much, a, a great sense of rationalism and understanding. Um, so, uh, there was um, properties of space, so wh- how did you know? How did Plato feel about what space was? Now, Plato had this idea that, you know, I think mm, maybe not exactly. He said that space had no qualities of its own. Well, you know. Your modern-day physicists who believe that there might be something called, that they call dark matter. You know that there are huge amounts of something out there that fills the universe that has qualities that maybe haven't been determined yet. But people don't necessarily believe that that space has no qualities. That he said that it was a pure medium. uh, You know, sort of empty basically in, the, the, in which objects and 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 things that happen take place in this but that it had no quality of its own and then at the end he said that space was homogeneous he he felt that it that everything in the entire universe was kind of equal um, and this is one of the earlier Belief systems, you might say, uh, of many people who who thought in a very scientific way about things, um, that uh, that everything you know is the same. Uh, we have scientifically looked at, uh, looked back into time, and we know now that in fact um, that the that the universe, well, we feel anyway, we, we have a lot of evidence to say that the galaxies are receding from each other at an increasing pace, a faster pace. So, so there's a faster speed at which our universe is flying apart. Um, so it means that, I mean, that would mean that, uh, you know, not everything is uh, clustered uh, the same way. There's, we don't have the same amount of exact um, amounts of stuff everywhere. Uh, although there is a fairly even dispersion of stuff. And this stuff, of course, is the result of of the early stages of our universe, in, in in whatever you believe was the original or earliest uh, sort of um, thing that happened in our universe that created, uh, you know, the the elements that would become elements, the things that would become later. Uh, Large st- stellar formations, stars, galaxies, things like that. But in any case, getting back to Plato's universe, Plato, uh, Plato, you know, had these ideas, these mathematical ideas, and he had these ideas that everything was, uh, these five types of matter were represented by different types of shapes, uh, so. Um, and, and, and it's interesting. There have been fairly recent theories um, that people have come up with that, that say that they feel that, uh, you know, not in the last 20 years, people have been saying, hey, maybe the universe is a dodecahedron. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe the universe actually has some sort of shape or some sort of shape envelops the universe. I mean, I don't know, there's different ways of looking at this. But it is kind of surprising that that Plato used the dodecahedron to describe his idea of what the cosmos was. Now, we're going back to uh, 400, well, from 347... Years before the common era to 427, so you know, close to you know four, 400, almost 500 years before the common era. So we're talking, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. That that this person felt that 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 the universe might be uh, have a specific shape like this, um, and he also stated that time had a beginning. So he had an idea about how he felt what what time was and that it actually had a beginning. So in other words time didn't always exist. Now that's a pretty crazy concept. So you know just sort of twirl that one around in your head. huh? (laughs) And here's where it's comparable or similar to a recent idea of many uh, scientists and physicists that it came together, time came together with the universe in one instant of creation. I mean, sounds a lot like the Big Bang, doesn't it? So anyway... um, the, the, and, oh, by the way, there's different kinds of polyhedrons. I, I, I will, uh, different kinds of uh, shapes that have the same name. Uh, in any case, um, I came across an article. Uh, again, I will share with you the source of this article. Um, th- uh, that, um, that introduced me to A scientist who I had not really bumped into before, which, but that's because I'm not, you know, until recently have become a student of science. But I'm really trained as a musician. But I came across this article about Werner Heisenberg. Um, Now, Werner Heisenberg um, became quite quite well known, uh, you know. At, at a fairly young age in fact uh, which is you know pretty cool um, for um, for coming up with this well sort of helping to codify the idea of a um, a quantum cosmology a qu- you know a, a a, a, a quantum understanding of the cosmos. Heisen, Werner Heisenberg. Heisenberg um, was a Nobel Prize winning physicist who developed this theory of quantum mechanics and a, a scholar of unified field theory of elementary particles. And he came up with this principle of uncertainty which is I guess, a pretty important concept. And, interestingly for me, being a musician, he was also considered, quote, at least according to this article, uh, a distinguished classical pianist, unquote. Um, so I, I'm going to recommend to you the, uh, the article uh, written about the Nobel Prize in 1932 uh, that he won. But the, the reason why it's interesting Uh, to talk about Heisenberg is because Heisenberg himself mused about things that people like Plato said. Um, So, uh, by the way, um, Heisenberg's father was, interestingly enough, a professor of medieval and modern Greek studies at University of Munich, Munich, München in Germany, and um, Heisenberg himself had uh, an education in in Latin and Greek, um, and so it's interesting because you know, and they visited Greece and everything that they were sort of you know students of 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 Plato and people like that, um, so. Why do I why do I want to make this comparison between this more contemporary? And if you lived in the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, Heisenberg, and then talking about Plato, well, the reason why is because I'm finding, as I look at this particular period of history, that there are Huge uh, numbers of uh, really important um, scientists and th- deep-thinking people um, who were influenced by the ancient teachings or whatever of Plato, the the Platonic ideas, um, and um, so so the the whole concept of this whole podcast is is looking back into the past to see what people figured out and what they couldn't figure out but then how what they thought about influenced and grew into what we think about and what we surmise nowadays and what we might surmise in the future as well, new discoveries and new uh, ideas that people will come up with, a lot of it is influenced by people that lived a long time ago. So it's, it's just interesting uh, how this human race evolves its ideas um, and borrows from its own, you know, sort of, wise people. So there were these five platonic figures, these shapes, these geometric shapes. In fact, uh, in my reading, I see that it says that, uh, that in fact, they were not all really platonic. They were not actually created by Plato. Um, like so many things in history, and I see also this mentioned time and time again in my readings, Um, many things that we some people might make the mistake of saying so and so invented an idea but in fact what people feel is that most of these concepts and ideas already existed somewhere they may have existed in other people's minds or they may have just simply physically existed and that people who thought about these things just simply discovered these things. They discovered these ideas and these concepts like an explorer who takes a trip to a a far-off land and gets onto a ship and goes overseas and has adventures and everything and, and discovers things that already exist in other places. So really... Scientists and people who think about things deeply like astronomy and cosmology are really explorers. And in fact, we are all explorers. Anybody who's interested in science is really an explorer. And in fact, we explore in so many different ways. Of course, the most exciting one for me, being interested in the early stages of the universe, is looking, is being able to travel backwards in time by looking with increasingly powerful telescopes into the past and looking at light because light travels at the speed of light incredibly fast. And so what we are seeing is light from early things that happened early in the history of the universe And we are, in fact, seeing things almost as they happen because light travels so fast that we're actually seeing things that happened millions of years ago. It's quite incredible. But in any case, these shapes, these platonic supposedly shapes, there was the cube, which he equated with the earth, being solid, there were these pyramid shapes um, which he equated with fire and then uh, there were like four triangles these are Pythagoreans and then there was the dodecahedron which is uh, uh, you know again we, we said already that that he felt that this might represent the actual universe. Um, he looked, liked, liked to think about very small things, and again, this is the basis of uh, the, the whole idea of, of quantum science, you know, the, the very, very, very small of everything. Each particle of air he said was a, was an octahedron, an eight-sided, geometrical solid, thing. Um, and um, in Timaeus, in his book, Plato described what air particles would have looked like, and they were these, they, they were these eight-sided things. Um, and then uh, there. Were, it was, you know you can read the whole description there were six triangles in each each equilateral face of the octahedron etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm not going to go and give you a whole math class today but it's i'm just find that it's interesting this discussion and then there was the icosahedron um, so there were these five different shapes and he, he found he thought that everything represented something, uh, in, uh, these, the five different types of matter. Um, so, um, he, he actually assigned the different shapes to different things. Like to earth, he says, let us assign the cubic form earth being, uh, not movable according to him. Again, this is their early concept because they had their feet planted on the earth and, you know, didn't realize that the earth was not necessarily the center of the universe. Um, but, uh, again, you know, so um, uh, the, the pyramid was this really important shape to him and why because it, he felt that it was the, the, the seed of fire um, and then and uh, then and then the, and then the uh, uh, what was there was one that was water so and then he, he says we have to imagine all of these to be so small that it, a single particle of any of these four things the four kinds of stuff, is can they be seen by us we can't actually see them they're so small this is a guy who was really figuring out what we now call atoms what we now call you know quarks what we call the tiniest uh, forms of of material that we can possibly think of in our minds and he was already kind of thinking of the the tininess of of elements. And that and he understood that, as he said, when many of these little tiny bits are collected together, their aggregates are seen. So you can what he's saying is you can only see matter when you have bunches and bunches of these little shapes put together. Well, this is actually true. This is the way that things really are. Uh, we've determined that by experimentation and um and and different you know theorizing and and proof of uh, you know scientific proof over and over and over again to the point where no one can really argue with this idea. So um, he felt, though he had kind of an interesting idea. he kind of felt like almost like ideas were more real than, things like matter itself and just kind of a little strange um he, he felt that the mathematical objects really existed and that they were discovered by mathematicians uh again the same way that that explorers discovered continents so these these mathematical objects weren't invented they were discovered um and uh And he believed, Plato believed, that mathematics gave the best way to think, the best way to train your mind to think about science and philosophy. And, you know, this is totally true to to this day. Um, So uh, he felt also, in order to represent fire and water, the way he thought about this, he said the tetrahedron had the smallest volume for its surface area, and the icosahedron had the largest. So he felt that that meant that dryness and wetness uh, would would correspond to fire and water. Um, the cube stand firmly on its base, right? right? It's, you know, it sits A cube sits down on a a flat surface. So that's why he felt that it corresponds to the earth being stable. The octahedron rotates freely if you're held by two of the vertices. That flexibility means that it corresponds to air, which moves around freely. Uh, The dodecahedron is 12... Sided shape, he said, corresponds to the universe because the zodiac, this was his explanation anyway, the zodiac has 12 signs. So, what is the zodiac? It's the, the constellation of stars that the sun passes through in the course of a year. So, and and the, the those twelve faces of the dodecahedron, which he felt represented the zodiac, um, was the reason was was an explanation of what the what the universe was all about. It, it I mean it's, you know we know that the zodiac it, you know it the the whole idea of, of the constellations are no, are not um, you know they they don't. Well, anyway, <laughs> I don't want to get too much in the weeds because, again, I'm not a scientist, but I find this stuff really interesting. And unfortunately, I'm not really sure why, but I can't seem to reach some of the sites. I'm going to steer you towards um, the uh, article uh, uh, from the physics department at uh, North Carolina uh, State University. Um, when it's when you're able to connect with it, um, so anyway, you've got these five different types of shapes, and they represent these five different parts of it. So um, now, now he had some little bit misconceptions. Also, you said that water condenses and becomes stone and earth. Well, that obviously is not exactly right because water it it does break down into minerals but you know stones and earth well not exactly (laughs) and then and then you can melt it and it goes back into being vapor and air so but but in, in in any case oh and oh and air if you if you hit it with a flame becomes fire and then fire can be extinguished and then becomes air again so it i mean it it's not exactly true because we happen to know that we do Lose a little bit of energy each time you do uh, change. You know, if if you if you burn uh, one element, you you do lose a little bit. You know, so I mean, it's not exactly equal, but his idea that that things are sort of cyclical, that uh, that that one type of uh, matter, you know, that one state of matter changes. Into another state of matter, and then can go back to the other previous state of matter, is very accurate. Um, so, you know, and this is all on the basis of observation and probably a little bit of experimentation too. Um, so he was really acting as as an early scientist. Um, so there were there were things that were a little funky about the way uh, they thought about some of these things. But in any case, uh, again, I found that it was really interesting that uh, Plato, these early philosophers, have so heavily influenced other people. Here's another influence. The French geologist de Bimont and Poincaré, who is also a very famous scientist, considered that the form of the earth represents uh, a deformed dodecahedron. So, again, this is exactly what Plato was saying. There was a Russian geologist, Kislitsin, who used in research uh, an idea about a dodecahedral form of the Earth. Uh, 400 to 500 million years ago, uh, they said that the geosphere of the dodecahedral form was turned into a geo-isohedron. So, I mean, I, I don't know about the accuracy of, the, of that claim either, but interesting because it it parallels the type of thinking of Plato. Here's another influence. Um, Kepler, um, who was, uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll visit with Kepler a little bit later on when we get into his period of history, but uh, but we, we know of Kepler as being one of the early users of t- telescopes. Um, he lived around the same time as the, the famous Galileo. Um, and Kepler Kepler um, uh, said that um, it's clear that the ratios of the planetary intervals from the sun are not just taken from solids. It's, it's not just uh, so again it's sort of like well anyway they, it's kind of like they go back and forth between believing in a, in deities or, or or this master mind or whatever but also believing that everything is just sort of logical and so it's like and, and, but I mean this is like not unlike the battle that we have Right up to today, between you know the ideas of uh, believing totally in science or believing in faith-based religions uh, or religious types of beliefs, um, or just simply faith, um, uh, these are these are uh, the same conceptual. Uh, battles uh dilemmas these arguments between two different ways of looking at the universe that still exist to this day but in any case uh kepler according to the i think this was an article in the encyclopedia britannica again we'll reference all this stuff for you um uh, kepler uh, was influenced by Plato, and he used the idea of these solids to describe planetary motion. Um, And Kepler assigned a cube to Saturn, a tetrahedron to Jupiter, a dodecahedron to Mars, and icosahedron to Venus, and the octahedron to Mercury. So, I mean, he was doing the same kind of thing, really. Um, so, uh, just to get back to um, Heisenberg for a minute, uh, the 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 um, we see this resemblance of of modern views to those of the Pythagoreans and Plato, and we can take that, um, you know, into you know the mathematical. Science uh, study um, in the and I, I want to sort of quote this one in modern quantum theory. There can be no doubt that the elementary particles will finally also be mathematical forms, but of a much more complicated natures. Uh, Greek philosophers thought of static forms and found them in the regular solids. Modern science however, has from its beginning in 16th and 17th centuries started from this problem. The constant element in physics since Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, is not a configuration or a geometrical form, but a dynamic law. The equation of motion holds at all times. It is, in this sense, eternal whereas the geometrical forms, like the orbits, are changing. Um, So, therefore, the mathematical forms that represent the elementary particles will be solutions of some eternal law of motion for matter. This is a problem which has not yet been solved. Who said that? That was actually Heisenberg. That was actually something that Heisenberg said um, in his uh, Revolution in Modern Science. So th- th- basically what, what we're saying is, is that we're, st- we're still kind of looking at platonic ideas and we haven't really figured out the exact final quantum explanations. But we're getting closer. So Plato had this idea, of like, what is time? Did time, and th- again, this is the same question that we're still asking today, thousands of years later, did time exist before the universe was created? Plato said, time, ti-, this is a great statement, time is an image of eternity. Time is an image of eternity so uh, now I'm not going to go into the weeds with this uh, too much um, there's so many wonderful uh, things that I want to point you to and again I'll give you all of my notes from all of my research um, because you know my podcasts go on way too long as it is already I'm bordering on an hour each every every two weeks um, so before you fall asleep from my <clears throat> gentle voice um, I just want to just repeat that uh, these uh, wonderful articles that you can read online or you can go and get the books <laughs> there are actually books behind many of these things Um Another thing that I was interested in was, um, to, again, to make that connection between platonic thought and modern thought is, and I just kind of, you know, whenever I have one of these questions, I, I basically put it into a, a question, it becomes a search, I put it into, into one of our well-known search engines online on the great uh, internet, and, um, and it spits out the answer to my question because many people are asking the same questions how do we use quantum theory in today's world so I found a great article in uh, India Today dot I N entitled can quantum physics be helpful to lead a better life um This little article explains the theory of every object being isolated from their surroundings. It essentially becomes a theory of the microscopic world of an atom and subatomic particles. Quantum theory is used in many ways in everyday life, including in lasers CDs, DVDs, solar cells, fiber optics, and so many other things that we have discovered or invented (laughs) um, that use the concepts of quantum theory in order to be functional. So, uh, oh, by the way, um, around the same time as Plato a um, couple of years later was another famous guy uh, named Aristotle. Um, now, Aristotle kind of went a little backwards here. He belie- now, Okay. The cool thing about Aristotle, even though he lived, again, f- 322 to 384 before, you know, B.C. He believed that the Earth was round. He, th- but at the same time, he thought that the Earth was in the center of the universe, and that the sun and the moon and the planets and all the fixed stars revolved around it. Um, and a lot of Greeks of his time believed what Aristotle said. So he he thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, and that it's like sits there and that the cosmos which surrounds it is is finite according to him it, it doesn't go to infinity in its in its sort of sh- shape and and bigness its space whatever but that it lives forever in time so here's two concepts that our scientists nowadays take issue with both of those concepts. But Aristotle was a clever guy and a lot of people followed him because he was clever. Um, and here's another thing that happens. Sometimes we, our are, are modern thinkers, are influenced by ancient thinkers. Sometimes we... Uh, become influenced by things that were very good explanations um, by people who lived long long ago but unfortunately sometimes um, we believe in things they sound so believable that they're very they are very believable but that we might get off base a little bit for a while we might get steered in a direction that will be counterproductive in our ability to really understand science um, because we might buy into ideas that were not necessarily well-proven. There was a guy who did not believe what Aristotle said about the Earth being the center of the universe. His name was Aristarchus and he believed in a heliocentric or sun-centered universe. Aha! This is basically what most scientists nowadays have come to accept. Hipparchus, in the hundreds, uh, around 100 BC, was also an important Greek astronomer of his time. He calculated the actual comparative brightness of a thousand different stars this is really really important stuff because what we've discovered in modern history is that if you can calculate how bright one star is compared to another star you can calculate how far away they are um, and and distance, determining distance in the universe is a really, really important thing to be able to do. Um, so, uh, th- some of the other things about Aristotle um, that we've determined to be not true, uh, uh, in his idea of the solar system, he never explained things like why there is what we call retrograde motion. But unfortunately, here's where the influence thing comes in, Aristotle's ideas were fully accepted by the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. This became a real problem during the time of Galileo. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, the difficulties that people have as they're trying to make serious scientific discoveries and they run up against entrenched ways of thinking that were influenced by ancient thinkers um, and that actually become part of the social fabric and the political system of these times and of these nations. So, uh, and the Britannica article says, thus did the notion of an earth-centered universe become gradually enmeshed in the politics of religion. And welcome in an age that insisted on a literal interpretation of the scriptures. Um, Aristotle also had another idea that um, later on was pretty well proven to be wrong um, by a guy who discovered the idea of evolution of the species. Um, Aristotle thought that the living species of the earth, like everything that lived on our earth, were fixed for all the time. Well, we know, in fact, that that can't be true because otherwise, how is it that things would go extinct, that the dinosaurs would vanish forever from our planet, for instance, or that new species may evolve? And so... Aristotle's argument that the world was eternal and that it went infinitely into the past and the future, though it had a finite spatial quality, Um, in the church they believed that there was a creation event, but the only place that they believed in infinity was in the idea of God, that the only thing that was infinite was God, that space or time could not be infinite? Well, we haven't got the answer to this yet because we don't really know, is space totally infinite? Is time totally infinite? But people believe that God is infinite. So, anyway inspired no doubt by the Greek goddess a lot of a lot of people were I mean you know even whether they whether they were accurate or not didn't really matter because the good thing was that many of these ancient beliefs and 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 deities and all this kind of stuff did inspire very interesting ways of thinking about things. There was a Greek goddess, Gaia. And this Greek goddess was no doubt the inspiration for the European Space Agency's Billion Star Surveyor. Um, The Billion Star Surveyor is this Gaia project that's one of the most incredible uh, projects um, undertaken by thousands and thousands of people, scientists and people working together. And uh, the Gaia project uh, run by ESA, the European Space Agency, has re- released its third data data release in March of this year. Um, so Gaia uh, in the Greek mythology was the personification of the Earth. Um, and uh, one of the most important deities, um, the ancestral mother of all life. And she was also considered the mother of Ur- uh, Uranus, the sky. Um, and um, Uranus had, uh, you know, uh, children that, who became the titans. And the titans became the parents of the Olympian gods. Uh and the giants and the, and the sea and the, and the you know so so you know this is uh, and and her equivalent was in the Roman Panthea was Terra, Earth. So I mean, Gaia, very inspiring, very, you know, big primordial deity. The Gaia project, the mission of the project of Gaia is quote, creating an extraordinarily a precise three-dimensional map of more than a thousand million stars throughout the Milky Way galaxy and beyond, mapping their motions you know, exactly where they go and, and the direction and, and whether they change direction, whatever, their luminosity, how bright they are, their temperature and their composition. This huge stellar census will provide the data needed to tackle an enormous range of important questions related to the origin, structure, and evolutionary history of our galaxy. Um, so so this is super important, this Gaia. We're going to talk more about uh, Gaia. And um, I'm going to play you three pieces of music now um, that are my first of my three. Now, again, the Zodiac, you know, if we study it as like astrology you know which is kind of fun stuff um but it's not considered science um it's inspiring because it gives us ideas about you know the representations for these different uh, constellations so we can personify the constellations and so it's it's kind of fun to do that so um uh, so that's what one of the things that i'm going to do is have a little bit of fun with the zodiac, which is the 12, representing the 12 constellations. It's kind of like the 12 original constellations Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. So it's a big project writing 12 different pieces uh, really quickly in two weeks. So I've finished only three so far the first three. Now, why do I say the first? Because, in fact, the Zodiac, these constellations of Zodiac do appear in an order. The first one that we see is Aries. Um, And so, you know, we we attribute, you know, we personify, we give, you know, sort of human characteristics or whatever to these, or or animalistic characteristics to these different... um, zodiacal constellations um on the basis of when they appear Aries appears first and so Aries is uh you know considered uh by astrologers uh, uh, that uh it's representing the ram um and that uh because it's the first one that appears they say it's it sort of like dives in um you know, without uh, without thinking too much, is uh, Aries is passionate and and motivated and a confident leader and very cheerful and, and relentless determination and and, and just very direct and and uh, and, and they, they like things quick and dirty and and so, um. It, it, Aries kicks off the, the spring season and the entire zodiac wheel, so to speak. Um, so, uh, and, um, according to the astrologers, it's, it's ruled by Mars, right? The dynamic red plant, planet that we name after the Roman God of war. Uh, and of course, you know, all these, these gods, of course, the, the things that were named after these things all came from ancient, you know, beliefs in, in gods that were very similar remember we talked about uh, visiting with the um, you know the, the people from the, the Fertile Crescent from a thousand years before. Um, anyway, these uh, explosive uh, rams are always uh, armed and ready for battle. Uh, Ares is known to be an ex- having an explosive temper um, but they also uh, you know, are like, you know, very sporty. And, you know, so so this is uh, um, the idea of Aries. So we're going to play you some Aries, and then we're going to go and listen to Taurus, um, which is represented by a bull. Uh, so, now, bulls are not just like, you know, strong and everything, but they are, but they also are, are very, they're very gentle. They're very... Uh, you know they like to just sort of you know you know walk around and eat grass and and roll around and you know and uh, they, you know they, they like to just and build up gradual relationships uh, uh, you know so so we're gonna have this very serene uh, bucolic music with the soft and soothing Sounds and aromas that represent Taurus, who, by the way, was uh, kind of related supposedly to Venus, the love, you know, representing love and beauty and money. And then the third uh, zodiacal constellation that we're going to listen to, my little piece of music, um, is about Gemini. Gemini are the twins. and so, and and by the way, when after we listen to some of the the music that's inspired by these things, we will definitely explore what, what these, uh, what what's really going on in in these parts of the sky, a little bit more, in in depth with a little bit more scientific kind of look, but, the Gemini, twins. Um, you know, these celestial twins, um, you know, people think that they would just, you know, that they're kind of nutty or whatever, or that they're two-faced or whatever. But in fact, the astrology uh, that I've been reading says that, uh, that they really don't really have a hidden agenda, that they're really just playful and, uh, and you know, they're social butterflies, very quick-witted and they buzz around and they're like little butterflies and stuff like that. And so th- th- their music, of course, is cheerful but a little bit um, mm, co- complicated, a little bit, uh, uh, gets, gets a little bit silly, a little bit weird because they just sort of flutter around each other and and uh, imitate each other and then, but not exactly and play games and stuff. Um, so anyway, I hope you enjoy those Pieces. And and after you listen uh, to my offerings, um, please consider uh, making a donation uh, by becoming a sponsor of the Opus Magnanimus Project. Um, this is meant to be fun and educational and inspiring and, um, you know, a good role model for all kinds of people. Um, and, um, and we hope to, as I've said before, develop this uh, project into a, a more and higher and higher quality project um, and to share with other guests now and then and to bring on more professional musicians and scientists and different people to add more higher quality uh, content to this podcast and um, to develop all the great uh, sort of expected uh, items that we've spoken about before and, um, and of course, there's some fun stuff that you get by being a sponsor. Um, so, take a look at the links underneath. Um, definitely give us a thumbs up, and uh, you know, help us with our our various different algorithms. Uh, whether it's the podcast algorithm, or whether you're looking at uh, some of my occasional YouTube's, um, and uh, and we'll see you in uh, two weeks. Um, we'll we'll actually uh, probably have the other nine of the zodiacal constellation um, pieces of music at that point. And as usual, we will progress farther into history, closer and closer to the Common Era. Um, And we'll parallel, as usual, with... More contemporary uh, uh, discoveries and that sort of thing, and um, and we will uh, we will we will look at some of the most wonderful things that are coming from our incredible liquid telescope, for instance, that's coming online, and. The JWST, which I don't like to call a JWST for the reasons that we've discussed before, and many other incredible projects that are coming down the pipeline. So here is Aries. Thank you So, that was Ares. I just want to remind you that these are really rough drafts of pieces of music. And that they will be morphing into slightly different things as they get edited and developed more and more. There might be some narration or perhaps some lyrics that might get singing and there might be some other instruments added like electric violin and what have you. Uh, Now let's listen to Taurus the Bull. Ah yes, so the bull is falling asleep in that nice, sunny summer afternoon. Now let's listen to the Gemini twins, those little social butterflies. You'll notice that I've changed instruments uh, for each of these different pieces of music to try to match... The qualities of the characters that I'm representing. Gemini is these two little butterflies so I've used two solo flutes to just chase each other around. In the music that you heard before about Taurus the bull I started out with a solo cello plaintive and it was joined later on by some other string players and after the string players, a lone French horn came along and just played a little horn. And then a pianist decided to join him. And so we added in some really classical kind of feeling stuff. Aries, The Bull, of course, the first piece you heard was much more, you know, contemporary. I used all hip hop drums. Um, And actually, two different sets of drummers. One is a virtual drummer, and then the other was adding... Well, I'll tell you a little bit more about the technical drumming uh, next time.